Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. I was like, I can't, I'm never going to get that kind of attention from the galleries that I want to work with. I kind of took that to heart for a while and just thought, whoa, it's never going to happen. And then... I just realized that stopping is not an option, so I'm going to have to figure out a way to do it my own way. Hello, and welcome to Don't Stop Us Now. I'm Claire Hatton. And I'm Greta Thomas. And we're on a mission to help you achieve your goals. We're all about sharing the secrets of the world's most innovative and pioneering successful women. Hear their uplifting stories and practical advice right here. Yes, right here. And if you're enjoying this podcast, then why not sign up for our newsletter at hello at don'tstopusnow.co and keep listening for this week's latest episode. Hello and welcome to today's show. We're excited because... We have got a long overdue first for you. Yes, we are. And yes, we do. And by that, we mean we have our first ever visual artist on the show today. Now, I also want to say welcome to the podcast, particularly if you're a first timer with us today. And thank you. A big shout out to Apple for featuring us on their podcast homepage. Absolutely. And today we're talking to the entrepreneurial and super talented Taylor White from the USA, Taylor has worked around the world creating incredible street murals and fine art. You may have seen her work in Melbourne, Oslo, Berlin, LA, Miami, and of course her hometown of Raleigh in North Carolina, to name a few. Taylor spent a lot of last year driven by the goal to create and produce her own solo exhibition, inspired by life in the time of COVID. And as you'll hear, that's no small undertaking or risk, both financially and creatively. It sure isn't. Now, in this episode, you'll hear how Taylor creates large-scale street murals, her advice for anyone who wants to be more creative, and who doesn't, why focusing on what you can control is so important and why she believes almost anything is possible today. So stay tuned for this great conversation with the thoughtful and creative Taylor White. Taylor White, welcome to Don't Stop Us Now. Thank you so much. I'm happy to be here. We are excited to have you on the show. And if I'm not mistaken, you're speaking to us from Raleigh in North Carolina. Is that correct? I am. Actually, I'm in Moorhead City, North Carolina. We're on a little beach vacation Luckily, it's raining, so what better way to spend my time than talking to Sydney, Australia? (laughs) Well, we certainly appreciate you taking the time from a family holiday to speak to us. Thank you so much. Now, one question we like to always start our conversations with our guests with is, you know, if you were at a dinner party and you were sitting next to someone you'd never met before, how would you describe to them briefly what you do? 
I mean, usually I would qualify it by saying I am a visual artist or a muralist or a painter, depending on how much of a follow-up question I wanted to anticipate from them. And we are so excited. Do you know you are actually the first visual artist we have had on the show and we're really excited to just learn more about your work and your creative process as well. So we're going to be diving into that absolutely. But before we do, as we do with all of our guests, we'd love to kind of take you right back and tell us a bit about your childhood just briefly. My background was very loving and supportive. I have been showing an interest in visual art since since I was a toddler. So my parents did everything they could to encourage and foster my interest in art. But looking back is very fortunate. So, you know, I grew up drawing all the time from preschool to present day. I did whatever I could to help that skill set grow. And were either of your parents from an artistic background themselves? Not particularly. My dad was a businessman and my mom was an opera singer. Wow. By the time I was born, she was teaching voice. It sounds like drawing and art has always been a part of your life. Did you always imagine growing up that that's what you would be when you grew up? I did. I think it got instilled in me from a very early age, so it became kind of a part of who I was. And so it was always a question of how, not if. You know, I mean, I was praised and lauded for my artistic skills, which was growing up as a creative kid. Maybe it was one of the only things that I was praised and lauded for. So it kind of quickly became something I leaned on to get people to notice me. Yeah, it was always just kind of like a, a foregone conclusion in my mind that I was going to do this in some capacity for my whole life. So what my parents really tried to encourage is that, you know, if you're going to be an artist, you have to figure out a way to get paid. Yeah, that's so important. You can totally see that in the way that you've set up your life and your journey. I know that you then studied fine art, which makes complete sense, but then you decided to move overseas. What prompted you to actually move? It's not something that most people do, I don't think, in the US anyway. No, it's not at all. And, you know, I graduated from Savannah College of Art and Design in Georgia, and I was feeling like not super enthusiastic about trying to move to New York and become an illustrator, which is what my degree was in. At the time, I was just thinking like, I, you know, I don't know any other languages. I don't know what's out there in the world. And so I, I wanted to try to do that instead. And I just so happened to know a connection in Oslo, Norway. And so that's where I went. Then I ended up getting hired full-time for this advertising agency just a couple of months after I moved there. So I did storyboarding and concept illustration, basically, for this ad agency for the next three years. Great. And how challenging was it for you to sort of get into that environment and feel comfortable? The challenges presented to my comfort were twofold. I think one, there was the cultural challenge, which was just being you know, a 22-year-old American in, in Norway. So there were some social challenges there and some ego challenges. You know, I was young and I was an artist. (laughs) It was kind of hard for me to adjust to being told what to do and how to do it. And I remember the first assignment that I got was these like zoo animal characters, like circus animals, like lions and giraffes and stuff. And it was for some kind of like kids yogurt or something. I don't even remember, but I did the characters in like my style and the client didn't like it. 
Oh, no. And so they came back and were like, oh, we want it a little bit more cute, like a little more Disney. <laughs> I was just mortally offended by that. <laughs> I can imagine. Um, and at the time I was drawing on paper. So I was just like, you really want me to redraw all of these things just so it can make them look more smiley? Like, that's ridiculous. Yeah. What I didn't understand at the time is like, you know, you really have to spell everything out. When you're presenting to like banks, for example, you know, these are people who don't have a visual imagination at all, which is really hard to understand as a person who's creative and like visually creative. That's such an interesting experience. It must have probably really set you up for now when you're working with corporates. You, you understand where they're coming from more. Yes. I have a little bit more room for compassion with clients who are more slow to understand what I'm trying to communicate to them. Yeah. Then you left Oslo and you went actually to Melbourne. How did that happen? Yeah. How, how did that happen? It's not like common Oslo to Melbourne. It doesn't sort of like it. <laughs> no, it was definitely the opposite extreme. Tangentially, I actually had a, a connection to Melbourne while I was in Norway, but the man who gave me my first exhibition, like painting exhibition while I was still there was from Australia. Ah. I think may- maybe Australia was already front of mind because of that. After three years, I was ready to leave Oslo and I ended up getting laid off from my job for economic reasons when the global economy was in trouble. And so I was looking for something else to do. And I was just chatting to a friend of mine. And my friend said that she was going to get on a plane from LA and fly to Melbourne after New Year's and asked me to join. And I said yes. And then I ended up staying and she didn't. And you mentioned that the gentleman that you knew who was from Australia in Oslo had organized, I think, your first exhibition. That sounds pretty momentous. Tell us just briefly about how you felt having an exhibition in Oslo. Yeah, it really was the precursor to me pursuing what I pursued in Australia, which is that I should be a painter. And this guy was a expat who had married a Norwegian and was living there. And he was in film and television and various creative endeavors. And he had a gallery space and he was very like eccentric. He had like a little gray soul patch and round bottle glasses and a beret. Like not your typical um, Aussie. <laughs> he was a, yeah. He was a cliche, but a great person and saw like my potential really quickly and was just like, you need to be painting. And so he just said, I'll, I'll give you the space. This is what you should do. Then he gave me a space in the back of that gallery that I spent every day at for the next, I don't know how many months making these paintings. And I hadn't, at the, I really didn't know how to paint. You know, I went to school for illustration and I didn't spend a whole lot of time doing fine art classes. So I just was like, all right, I'll just do whatever feels right and figured it out and made these, you know, weird little paintings that were basically based on sketchbook drawings and everything. So it felt very freeing to be able to paint on a large scale, even if I didn't know what I was doing. And so that planted the seed that was just like, you need to be a painter. Amazing. And speaking of painting on a large scale, I think this is something, I might be wrong, that you started in Melbourne, but I think you're really well known for, as well as your kind of fine art paintings, is big size street art murals. How did that come about? So that came about in Australia. So I started talking to people and getting involved in projects and The first project I did was this little laneway project for a guy called Sean Hasek, who today runs Juddy Roller. They have done a lot of the silo art trail projects Uh, in rural Australia. And like they do massive street art curation. And at the time, it was just not something I had thought of, but it felt really interesting and something I wanted to pursue. So I did a bunch of different projects in and around that area and, and then got involved with another like agency and then just started doing that kind of thing. Sort of a mix between fine art and street art 
related art projects. Talk to us about how on earth you sort of translate from, you know, the mere human scale of hands to these giant size works of art on buildings. How does that happen? How, and how challenging is that? It's actually not as hard as it looks, I'll say. I mean, speaking as someone who's done it for a decade, that yeah. might be a little bit of a silly answer, but <laughs> I started small and worked my way up. So by the time I was doing big projects, I had already kind of had a feel for how it should be done. And I'd watched other artists do it. So it didn't feel like such a huge culture shock thing. So, I mean, how I do it, like varies from project to project, but a lot of it is like a grid and enlarge technique. You know, I take a photo of the building and I may or may not have drawn like random lines on the building before I take the photo. And then I put the image of my drawing onto the photo digitally. And that's like my map. So that's how I get the, the lines in as effortlessly as I do. But that's a technique that a lot of large scale muralists use. If, if you ever see a pictures or video of muralists putting stuff up and it's like a partial image and then what looks like underneath it, they have like a lot of, a lot of squiggly lines. That's usually what that is. Wow. It's really fascinating watching some of your videos on Instagram in terms of, you know, just looking at these incredible murals. They are just, they're so, I don't know, from somebody who isn't an artist, you just sort of think, God, that is just unbelievable how you actually do that. Because you're up on big cranes as well, aren't you? With Mm -hmm. spray cans. Spray cans and house paint, latex paint. Incredible. And so you learned about doing murals in Australia and then you decided to come home to Raleigh. How hard was it for you to come back and sort of assimilate back into Raleigh? It was hard. I mean, I I wasn't really ready to leave Australia when I did. You know, I could have probably tried to find another visa, but at the time I was just exhausted from that whole process and I was ready. Like the family thing was kicking in. Coming back to a place like Raleigh, like I did, you know, I did have a little bit of an ego trip again when I came back because I had been all over the world and seen a lot of really amazing art and artists and felt like Raleigh was a little behind at the time. And, you know, it was, to be fair, but I really did see the potential in it as well and felt like as frustrated as I, as I could get being there, like a part of me felt called to be there and to be a part of the building up of what Raleigh could be. Yeah, it looks as if you've very much played that role. I feel like I have, actually, at this point. like I feel really thankful to have been afforded the opportunity to see that potential and to take action in that way. Because I did feel like you know it's, it's possible that I did give up something. Did you have a plan of how you would break into changing the scene in Raleigh or did you just sort of take one step at a time? I didn't really have a plan. I wanted to, you know, maybe curate projects and bring in other artists and do a bunch of stuff. And then, it, you know, after a while I was like, well, you know, I, I need to really focus on making my art, what it needs to be before I start trying to do other projects. I have wanted to self-produce a show for a couple of years. The thing that got me interested in doing my own thing was just I, I had some other artists that I'm familiar with and friends with who have done it themselves. And it really resonated with me because it was just like, I'm having the worst time getting attention of galleries. And for a while, I blamed the fact that I lived in Raleigh instead of LA. You know, if they really wanted to put me in a show, they would have put me in a show. But I like internalized all that. and was like, you know, I'm never going to get that kind of attention from the galleries that I want to work with. And, you know, of course, you you look at the online, how to 
be a successful artist things. And a lot of the times they'll say, well, what you really need, the first thing you need to do is need to get noticed by the top five global galleries by the time you're 25. <laughs> Easy. You know, I'm like, oh, that's helpful. Thank you. <laughs> so I just, after a while, you know, I thought, well, it's never going to happen. And then I just realized that I can stop or I can figure out a way to do it my own way. Yeah, I can imagine that some of those big LA or New York galleries can be a bit snooty about provenance and where the artist is based and that sort of thing. But that's not to take away from the fact that you've actually been exhibited internationally in all kinds of amazing places like Berlin and tell us briefly about you know. Yeah, of course. And I, again, I don't mean to denigrate, you know, any aspect of the art scene anywhere. And my point was, there is not much of a use for getting discouraged if you feel excluded from that scene. Obviously, I've done exhibitions in Australia, and I did my first in Norway. And I've shown in Atlanta, I did a solo show there in 2017. And that's just all leveraging relationships. And being able to say yes to the opportunities that come around, whether or not they look like what you expected. And I think that that would probably be the thing that I would want people to take away the most is like, we live in an astonishing world right now where really anything is possible and accessible to most people. And if it doesn't seem accessible to you, it probably is. You just haven't figured out your way around the obstacle yet. I love that. That's very inspiring. And it's so true. You know, it's, and it's not just in the visual arts. If you think about publishing or video and filmmaking, all of these alternative ways to reach your audience. So yeah. thinking about this exhibition, how did you, especially in the time of COVID and all the uncertainty and fear that was happening last year, how did you make this happen? Because it's not an insignificant endeavor, is it? No, it's not. You're exactly right. It was a huge, it sounded insane on paper, huge financial risk. It's a huge risk with timing. But it was just one of those moments where I realized that there, this was an opportunity that wasn't going to come around in this way again, because I'd been thinking about it and thinking about it. And I like to think about things, you know, it's nice to live in a fantasy because you never have to be responsible for making things actually happen. So there are so many things in my life that I have thought about and never fulfilled on out of fear or whatever. And this time, because of COVID, there were a lot of businesses that had failed. So there were lots of available properties. And so I just mentioned it to this friend of mine. And the next thing I knew, he'd hooked me up by an email with the Downtown Raleigh Alliance, who was in the process of running a program to try to hook up small businesses with pop-up opportunities in these empty storefronts. And they were just super excited about the idea of having an, an art show. And they knew my art already because I'd been working steadily for seven years and had been had gathering the international clout that I had been gathering. And so I was lucky enough to have the support of these people. So it just kind of felt like I had the wind underneath me. I love this story because... As you say, so many of us have these ideas and dreams in our head of what we might do. And sometimes we spend so much time thinking about them in our head. It's almost like we've done them. And mm -hmm. it's kind of so important and not always that common to be able to get the big ideas out of our head and make them happen. And what I love, actually, is it was just because you said it out loud to somebody that it actually happened. Oh, yeah. That accountability thing. That's like I said it to someone and then the ball was rolling. 
And yeah. after a while, I was like, oh, people actually want this. And people were actually coming to the table to help me make it happen. It sort of had its own energy and momentum, didn't it? It's so powerful. It's so true. It's like that Goethe quote, and I'm not going to be able to remember what it is, but you know, when you say it, when you put it out there, the universe kind of conspires. Yeah. Yeah. You speak it into existence. And tell us about the theme, the pursuit of happiness. You know, I, I did theme it somewhat pointedly at the idea throughout this pandemic that we have a very profound disconnection with our self-identity and our natural state. We think that we exist separately from nature. Nature is a state of existence that we don't inhabit. We are destructive to it and also above it and can manipulate it and control it. And, you know, we have our technology and our entertainment and we don't have to actually experience all that much of the natural world and the, the forces of that world. And, you know, if a disease comes along that we're unable to contend with, well, science will prevail. You know, we'll just make a vaccine and engineer our DNA to resist this virus and then go back to business as usual. And I found that to be a little bit alarming. What would you like people who view your art or buy your art to take away from this exhibition? I do want people to think about how we live our lives individually and as community and globally, because we're so hyper-connected, news from across the world hits you in seconds. And it's so difficult to separate what's in front of your face from what's going on in the world. I think that peace and happiness in whatever iteration that you're looking for is achievable by looking at what's immediately around you and what you can control in your immediate space. What's so in your immediate space and in your family and in your community yeah, absolutely. And try to get out of this fear state. Yeah, I mean, an incredibly important message. And for yourself personally, what have you done or had to do differently? Yeah, good question. Ostensibly, not much of my life has actually changed much. Like my work is still going strong and everything. I think I might have redefined for myself what I think success is and what I want for my life. I had projected a lot of my energy outward as far to the, you know, the far reaches of the world as much as I could. And I, like over the past year, have really felt at home like where I am. So now I'm just kind of like, I, I actually feel great. I feel like I'm financially stable. I have a following that I really appreciate. And I'm focused on growing that audience as much as I can. And I'm realizing that I don't need to chase that all over the world in order to achieve what I'm looking to achieve. You've talked a lot in our conversation in various different ways about ego, and it sounds as if you've sort of come to terms with your ego in the last 12 months. Does that sound right? For better or worse. I mean, yes, I think that there's been a lot of calming down on that front of like feeling like I don't have anything to prove. I've proved myself to myself. Yeah, you're already good enough. Exactly. So all there is left to do is you know, shut up and do the work and make it known as much as I can and do the best job on projects that I have. Yeah, absolutely. And be surrounded by family and good practices. Grounded, I guess. Grounded, exactly. That's the word. Yeah. And how do you think that that's changed your creative process, if at all? I mean, I think my my art is better than it's ever been, not just because I've continued to practice at it, but like just I'm in a really good, authentic place for myself and for what I want to be saying. And I'm feeling like more like I'm dipping my toes in the water of saying what I think 
it's helpful in terms of having a well-rounded presentation of the work and of myself and who I am. I mean, you know, I don't know if a year or two ago I would have been willing to get on a podcast and talk about my ideas. <laughs> well, we're so glad that you are. Yeah, you know, I'd love to learn more about how does the creative process and how do ideas come to you? I'm sure others listening would love to be more creative and love to learn how ideas come to you and how they get there. So it's it's changed a little bit over time, but the formula that I've come to now is I use photo references for a lot of my work, almost all of my work, and I either take them myself or I have like a membership to an online database. So I pay a yearly fee. So I have access to those photo assets and resources or, you know, I, you know, find them elsewhere. I start with the subject at the center of the piece and then kind of build compositions up from there. These days I work almost completely digitally to develop compositions and make do a lot of collaging of imagery in Photoshop. And for like the collage imagery, I use just whatever I find. Like I pull screenshots with the photo reference and the created image in Photoshop and um, use masks and layer styles and all of that stuff to create something new out of that. But a lot of it is really built up from pictures. If somebody said to you, I, you know, I'd really like to be more creative, what could they do to be more creative? I think my advice would be don't try so hard to be what you think creative should be. Thinking back to all the times that I've gotten stuck in my creative endeavor, it's always been around comparing what I'm doing with what I think I should be doing and with what other people are doing, because that just that just doesn't give you room to explore your own expression. You know, everybody's expression is different and technical ability is really important. I, you know, it's important not to pour all of yourself into just being creative without a structure because other people aren't going to get it. If you're communicating something to someone in words, but you're not using language the way it's traditionally used, the chances of your recipient actually getting your communication go down, yeah. right? But if you really want to let the world know who you are and what you have to say, you should figure out a way to structure your work in a way that actually communicates what you're trying to say. Yeah, that's really important advice actually for anyone doing anything. For anyone, yeah, it's exactly. You know, if you're finding yourself misunderstood, start by looking at how you're communicating, what you're trying to communicate, because it might be your fault. But circling back to the advice thing, to try to put it as succinctly as possible, like figure out your structure that works for you and feels right for you. And don't worry too much about whether you're doing it right. You'll figure it out. That's really great advice. And talking of advice, one of the questions that we like to ask all of our guests is if you were looking back to your 25-year-old self, what would be the one piece of advice that you'd give her? Oh my gosh. I think my advice to my 25-year-old self was stop being so preoccupied with all of this unimportant stuff. And by that, I mean, you know, you're very worried and you're very self-absorbed. What I mean by that is you're just very focused on you in a way that's not productive. Everybody your age is having the same problems, so just don't worry about it so much and calm down. Great advice. And obviously you took it. Yeah, of course. <laughs> it took me a few years to chip away at all that bit by bit. I want to add to that, don't worry about it. Like, Stop making everything mean so much. Just don't worry about it so much. It's like, you know, something happens that you don't like. And instead of just saying, okay, this thing happened and I didn't like it, 
you say this thing happened because of all these reasons and probably because of something you did or said and probably because you suck so much and because nobody likes you and no one's ever going to like you and you're never going to be good enough to that and the other thing like fill in the blank so the same thing that everybody goes through you could have saved yourself so much time and, and trouble by just saying oh this thing happened and i didn't like it and moving on totally well Taylor, thank you so much for this wonderful conversation. We've so enjoyed it. It's really fascinating to get into your journey as an artist and to understand it a little bit more. Now, if listeners wanted to find out more about you, more about your exhibition, where would they go to find that information? The quickest source is my Instagram account, Taylurk, spelled T-A-Y-L-U-R-K. And then I have a website, which is Taylor White. Dot art and my name is t-a-y-l-o-r-w-h-i-t-e fantastic well we'll make sure that we put all of those links on the show notes pages so it's easy for listeners to find you so with that thank you so much taylor for the fantastic conversation we wish you all the best with your exhibition thank you so much thank you so much i really appreciate it i had a great time Taylor has a really unique blend of pragmatism, creativity and entrepreneurialism, don't you think? I really agree. Uh, you know, it can't be easy making a living from being an artist. You know, The art world, well, as far as I can tell, can be pretty traditional and establishment and breaking into the big name galleries is hugely competitive. Yeah, sure is. And you can tell that Taylor's been really consciously thinking about how to set herself up from the outset so that she can do what she loves. You know, I love how she said she feels she's got no option other than to create art. Yeah, absolutely. And full credit for her. You know, one study I saw recently showed that only 17% of artists make most of their income from their actual art practice. It's a tough game to be in the arts. Yep, sure is. Well, that's this episode done and dusted. Stay tuned next week for one of our popular mini episodes. And then in the following few weeks, boy, do we have some great guests and conversations for you. Yes, we do. In the meantime, have fun, stay safe, and please help us spread word about this podcast if you enjoy it. Ciao for now. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.